1: I am your host, Vic Jurami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. My guest today is Professor Barlow de from California State University, Fresno. Next, my guest is West Hollywood Council member and frontrunner for the LA County Board of Supervisors, Lindsay Horvath. Uh, stay tuned. Here are some news items from over the weekend and this morning. President Joe Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin that the US and its allies will respond decisively and impose swift and severe consequences on Russia should Putin decide to invade Ukraine. In a roughly one-hour phone call, the White House said Biden made clear to Putin that he would be risking with an invasion. A senior administration official told reporters following the call that the discussion was substantive but the U.S. fears that Russia may still launch a military attack anyway. Whether its efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election handling of sensitive White House documents, or the finances of his namesake business, the volume of investigations involving former President Donald Trump is staggering. Trump is being sued by lawmakers and police officers, his niece, Mary Trump, magazine writer E.G. Carroll, whose rape accusation he denies, and his former attorney, Michael Cohen, who's already served jail time. The New York State Attorney General and Manhattan District Attorney are looking at his company, and several congressional committees still want to see his tax returns. Now for the January 6th House Select Committee investigation. The panel made up of Democrats and two Republicans, Reps Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger, is looking into everything leading up to and involving the January 6th attack on the US Capitol by Trump supporters that interrupted the certification of Joe Biden's election win. The committee has issued at least 80 subpoenas requesting testimony or phone records from close Trump advisors including Rudy Giuliani and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Stop the Steal rally organizers, and former White House staffers. Billionaire real estate developer Rick Caruso, who developed The Grove and a number of other high-end commercial properties across the Southland, is officially running for mayor of Los Angeles. Long rumored it became official when he filled paperwork last week with the city clerk. A longtime Republican, the developer became an independent before registering last month as a pro-centrist, pro-jobs, pro-public safety Democrat. He did so, he said, because he believes that the country faces an existential threat to democracy, and the time had come to take sides. Lawmakers in Los Angeles earlier last week voted to strip a sheriff who refused to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for his staff of his enforcement power. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors decided last Tuesday to relieve Sheriff Alex Villanueva of the responsibility to enforce COVID-19 vaccine mandates. The decision to strip him of the responsibility comes after Villanueva has for months refused to enforce the mandate. (laughs) Professor Barlow Dermakritichan from California State University, Fresno, who is also the coordinator of the Armenian Studies Program and the director of the Center for Armenian uh, Studies at Fresno State. Professor Dermakritichan, my first question to you is as a scholar, as a historian of Armenian studies who's familiar with everything that's happened in the last 100 plus years, and certainly what happened in 2020, is based on your impression and your perception, what do you think happened in 2020 in terms of the attack that was orchestrated on Artsakh uh, by Azerbaijan and Turkey?
2: That's a question that requires really a a lot of time and a lot of depth to to be able to answer. But there are some, I I think, sort of maybe obvious answers in the sense of uh, that the attack probably took place at a time which was the most uh, opportune for Azerbaijan uh, working with Turkey, uh, because they chose a time in which the world's attention was perhaps uh, diverted through presidential elections in America. Uh, and other things, COVID and the pandemic and other things. And they had planned for a long time. So it's very clear that there was a concerted plan. uh, And this was part of the long-term plan, probably five, 10 years even, that Azerbaijan was going to obtain the most modern weapons to work with Turkey. And I think in a sense, they must have also uh, made Russia understand that that this was going to happen and that uh, Russia you know was going to stop it or not but that they 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 were going to go ahead and they probably judged the political atmosphere also in armenia as well that that it was the opportune time so there are so many factors but um pretty much it's clear that and it's hindsight's easy because they were successful they were victorious but uh i think these were some of the factors that that were involved in it that's
1: interesting you you said uh, you said a lot of things that sort of keep repeating themselves except for one which has been a question for a lot of people because um, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of speculation that how much did Russia know? How much did they know? Did they give a green light? Did they give their uh, blessing, if you will? Uh, it sounds like you think that on some level, Russia had a, uh, an awareness of this would happen at some point.
2: I think I do, although I don't have firsthand knowledge. It's it's basically just kind of reading the tea leaves or looking at the sources and then talking to people that perhaps uh, have a better insight from Armenia, because I think you have to really be in Armenia to understand uh, much of what happens in Armenia. But what I understand is that I don't think a war like this could have just uh, erupted without in some way uh, the United States, even Russia, knowing what's what was going to happen and in, I say that because Russia was unhappy with Armenia in many ways. And I think this, that this could have been one way that Russia was to sort of emphasize that they do have, I'm going to use the word control, but they do have a great deal of influence over Armenia. And that it's in Armenia's best interest and Karabakh's best interest to, uh, to pay attention to what Russia is doing. And maybe Armenia didn't do that as well as they should have. Maybe they didn't read the signals very well. It could have been that, that Russia uh, was going to give Azerbaijan maybe a green light, but maybe not so much. Maybe they didn't realize the extent and the, and the um, intensity of what was to take place. But I, I think that they had to have some uh, pre-knowledge of it, but simply because there was military movement going on. Uh, people knew that they had been buying arms, drones. That's no secret. I mean, you right. know, you have satellites, you can follow that, you can follow the flights and everything else. So I think they, they did know to a certain extent.
1: You know, in the last year and a half, I've sort of lived this. So I've sort of been in this, read about it, you know, listened to the experts and watched and all of that. And I've gone to Armenia a few times and interviewed people. And from what it seems to me uh, with the sort of the genocidal intent that they uh, orchestrated this attack, um, the sort of trying to ethnically cleanse Artsakh, uh, or as they call Nagar of of Armenians and uh, the cultural genocide and what's still happening. I'm just wondering if, and having read, I should say, the UN's definition of genocide, wondering if this,
2: to you, seems like a genocidal act or genocide to begin with. I think I think you have to you have to look at history and look at the flow of history and and look at what has happened in terms of uh, Armenia's relations with Turkey, Armenia's relations with Azerbaijan. And if you just, you know, stack it up and look at the last 100 years since the genocide, you have to ask the question, why is why is Turkey so intent on uh, attacking Armenia or working with Azerbaijan to attack Armenia or Karabakh? And then they don't stop even there. They keep demanding more. And uh, the maximalist claim is that the president of Azerbaijan claims that, you know, uh, Armenia is a part of historic Azerbaijan, which is just ridiculous. But uh, when you make that kind of rhetoric and you're convincing your own people to to prepare for war and to go to war, I can only think that for the government of Azerbaijan and Turkey, that it was intentional. It's just one plan, part of the pan-Turkist plan, the pan-Turkism, which was in already in the early 20th century that caused one of the causes of the genocide. I don't see anything other than a goal of eliminating all Armenians from Armenian and Karabakh. This is
1: the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK
2: 90.7
1: FM. I am your host Vic Jaramie and you are listening to my interview with Professor Barlow Chan from California State University, Fresno. So, wow, that's that's pretty clear. So would you essentially say this is genocide? This was just another attempt at a genocide.
2: I have to say it was. Why, why, how can you target civilians? How can you target hospitals? How can you tar- target churches, uh, schools, and, and try to repurpose all of this as some sort of, uh, I don't know what, they, what they're going to use as justification, but they've gone far beyond the bounds of, of what uh, even they claimed that they wanted to do. So there's no, there's no end point. There's no there's no way to to negotiate peace uh, when there is no negotiation. That's why I think the negotiations failed since 1994, when when the peace peace treaty wasn't a peace treaty, the ceasefire was signed, and yet nobody was able to solve this paradox. Nobody from the OSCE to you know any of the great powers, uh, because if you look at it, Azerbaijan is simply unwilling to negotiate. They're not willing to give up anything, and you have to do that in any sort of negotiation. Where do we go from
1: here? Uh, you know, you know, today there was just another absurd uh uh news that they have created this uh committee or whatnot to look at the monuments, the so-called monuments, Armenian monuments, mm-hmm. uh trying to convince the world that they are uh Caucasian Albanian monuments, that Armenian mm-hmm. sort of fabricated it. and it's just so absurd it's like <laughs> it's like mongolians claiming the vatican is theirs or the french claiming the you know the great wall of china was built by them it's just so bizarre and you know this propaganda campaign continues it's a
2: it's it's the sort of the million dollar question but in terms of the propaganda that's that's unceasing that's not stopped in any way, uh, they bribe bribed people, they they put out propaganda, they put out what on the face of it seems ridiculous, but yet um, this is the way history is written. History is written by the victors, history is written by those who have money and can influence. And so that's what they are doing uh, with their money. Uh, as far as the future, I, I can't really tell you more than five years uh, in, in the sense that as long as there are Russian peacekeepers in that area, I think there's a relative Sense of security, but uh, you're talking about an area, Karabakh, the Artsakh, which is now pretty much surrounded. There's only one little lifeline, which is guarded by Russian troops, and it's very limited, the amount of people that can get in. So, what is the what is the end game? What where where do the negotiations go? Corridors, uh, transportation routes that won't solve the problem. That's not going to guarantee the security of, of Artsakh, and unless one of the great powers really comes out and secures it says that we're you know we're going to willing to go to war for these people which i don't see in the immediate future the long term is is bleak uh, frankly it's uh it depends on the will of the armenian people themselves that that live there and the will of the diaspora that can support them
1: um it's very it's a sobering reality you know i was going to ask you about the international community their inaction and their sort of failure the lip service the both sideism, the false balance coming out of uh whether it's you know charles Michel of uh european union or osce when it was Anne lind and and such but it does seem like it's going to be up to the armenians in armenia as well as diaspora to really see this through i feel like you know when we were talking about russia it was also i personally think that they got a green light turkey especially got a green light from the trump administration to go ahead and do what you need to do uh we got your back and so i was i was excited to have the biden administration and of course it was a good thing that he finally recognized the armenian genocide but then he turned around and lifted Section 907 and gave $100 to Azerbaijan. So I feel like in the U.S., we don't really know. I don't know if uh, either party, I feel like Democrats more so have our back, but not the way they should. And when I see it in contrast to what's happening with Ukraine and how the U.S., it, it seems like we're almost about to go to World War III and yet for 5000 armenians being massacred in 44 days not much happened is there any opportunity there do you have a, are you hopeful
2: with our for american department? policy that american policy would change not very because again i think it almost repeats what happened 100 years ago with not only the genocide but the establishment of the republic of armenia Um, because it's an area which doesn't have great interest economic interest or strategic interest in many ways for great powers so they they're not involved in there i mean you can break it down to looking at what what are they looking for why would they want to support the armenians they're not interested in armenians as armenians you know we have a nice culture and we're smart and all of these things but but there's you have to look at what is of value what is of interest these great powers and frankly i don't see it you know we we want to think about it and we want to hope that america would support it they talk about all these things you know human rights and all of that but the practical matter is that they stand aside they don't they don't really stand for that in many ways it's just rhetoric so i like to be practical rather than romantic about um, you know the way things are and i think we have to look at it just really pragmatically and, and try to figure out what to do.
1: This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, And you are listening to my interview with Professor Barlow Dermogurti-Chan from California State University, Fresno. So are we missing anything? Is there is there something that goes through your head? And, and when you watch when you watch uh, all the events that that sort of take place, whether it's with the Armenian government or diaspora, the organizations, all the efforts that are being made, including uh, some of our more vocal members of Congress, like Senator Bob Menendez, Congressman Schiff, Congressman uh, Frank Pallone. You know, and I asked this question to Congressman uh, Pallone a few days ago, I said, it seems like there's a block between what the Armenian uh, congressional caucus is saying, and the State Department—like there's there's the disconnect. Um, do you see any kind of a missing link? Do you see anything that's not being done?
2: Well, there are always questions we ask. Uh, everyone's asking about. Well, what's what's the Armenian government doing? What are they? What's their plan? You know, why are they? Do they want to really give up Karabach? Do they really want to give up Artsakh? Is it something they really feel strongly about? Is it rhetoric? What is it? Uh, when you get to the diaspora, we're so dispersed. We're so, so different in so many ways. I mean, what we do is amazing as it is, I think, in many ways. I mean, in terms of organizing support, but it's very difficult to see the, the pathway. I mean, and I don't have any magic vision or anything that that can lead me to say that I have a solution for it there there are so many questions uh that that are difficult to answer um I think we have to do kind of what we've been doing obviously there should be some ways of changing that in terms of relationship maybe with Armenia but um I don't see it right now it's not it's not changing it's kind of gone very quickly back to sort of a status quo and even kind of a worse sort of a You know, the shock of it all has uh, made people become apathetic. And I believe that we cannot abandon Armenia. We can't abandon Artsakh. So we should kind of double our efforts or triple our efforts to keep that contact, to show support, to visit. So that in some way they have to figure out their own future. um, And we, we can help them with that, though. And communicate it with us. Yeah, that would be great
1: professor what question should i have asked you that i haven't
2: well you're asking good questions it's just i don't have all the answers for you but uh you know it's 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 looking at the world as an armenian if you're concerned about the future of armenians and the future about you know cultural identity and all of those there's a lot of challenges certainly but we can't just stop and say you know i'm just going to you know not not pursue this, not not help the Armenian cause, or or support Armenians, or work uh, in whatever field you're working in. You can be in education, you can be in business. Yeah, uh, you know, the world changes. There there are changes. You know, it could all change very quickly, in another direction. The world has always seen that. You know, there could be another war that could move it in another direction. So, I'm going to be, you know pragmatically hopeful let's put it that way just that um, we can work together and, and and really you know achieve something
1: i like that you you seem pragmatic and uh, sort of um practical and hopeful that's that's great i do want to ask you about um this may not be in the film but i, I want to ask you about your program at fresno state mm-hmm. the armenian studies program If you can tell me a little bit about that
2: Well, our our program is going to be celebrating its 45th anniversary, actually, this year. So it's been in existence, actually, more than that. So we've had courses in Armenian studies since the 1960s. The program kind of developed uh, about 45 years ago. I've been with the program for more than 35 years, 37 years this year. And so we teach uh, language courses, art courses, culture courses, history courses, literature courses. Uh, students can attain a minor in Armenian studies. Uh, we have an active publishing series. We have a newspaper, chargeum. Uh, we do active uh, engagement with the community through different programs, events, banquets, music programs, films. So it's a, it's a very active program. It's one that I think uh, if a student is interested to go to college to, to learn more about the Armenians, they should come to Fresno State whatever, whatever major they pursue, and they can come to Fresno State and, um, you know, learn more about the Armenians. Fantastic. Well, um, uh, is there anything before we go, you'd like to add? Uh, No, everything's, I think we we touched on a lot of things. So,
1: well, thank you, Professor. I I appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, yeah, very, lots of um, eye-opening things, but in a good way that you said. Good. Thank you. Thank you. That was my interview with uh, Professor Barlow Terimekritichian from California State University, Fresno, who is also uh, the coordinator of the Armenian Studies Program and the director of the Center for Armenian uh, Studies at Fresno State. Uh, Thank you, Professor, for your time, your wisdom. I'm very grateful for your time and uh, hope to chat with you again soon.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.
1: Lindsay Horvath is the longest consecutively serving mayor of West Hollywood, leading the city in 2020 and 2021. She was elected to the West Hollywood City Council in 2015 and previously served from 2009 to 2011. Councilmember Horvath has a long history of civic and social justice advocacy. She's widely known for her work advancing the rights of women and LGBTQ people, as well as creating age-friendly, sustainable communities. She is now the frontrunner candidate for the LA County Board of Supervisors, endorsed by Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who is retiring. Councilmember Horvat's mayor duties ended uh, in November of last year. Uh, city of West Hollywood, like a lot of other cities, uh, rotates who is in the mayor's seat. So she's now council member uh, Horvath in West Hollywood. Thank you for joining me this morning on the Blunt Post Vic. how are you
0: today? I'm doing well, how are you?
1: I am great, probably not as great as you since uh, we'll get into this, but you are now officially a front runner for for, uh, LA County Supervisors Race, which will happen later this year, the, the election. So congrats on that.
0: Thank you very much. I commit to our entire district that I will be the hardest working person in this race, but it is always nice to have good news. I don't
1: doubt that. As I've, you know, full disclosure, I've known you a long time, and I know that to be true, so I can attest to it. Um, You know, I want to go back and sort of ask you about, um, and this is just curiosity, with so much is happening, I feel like, well, it's something we can We've said for, for the longest time that there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. There's a lot of transitioning, you know, transitional period happening with uh, COVID is, gets, you know, bad and, you know, a little bit lighter and then it gets bad again and all of that. But not just that, just politically also, we're going through so many different things. It's hard to really assess where we are. From your perspective, how would you describe the current state of affairs in our nation? in our state of California, and then, of course, uh, L.A. County.
0: Oh, my gosh. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, you know, it's I would just say, you know, everybody's really going through something right now. You know, everybody is facing an incredibly challenging time, whether you have experienced personally the devastating impacts of COVID on your your own or your life. Of one's health, uh, whether you have had to close your business, whether you've lost your job, whether you're just really dealing with uh, the, the emotional and psychological impacts of isolation and loneliness, you know, everyone is really going through something right now. And I think that's nationally, I think that's right here at home. And so what we see you know, at, at, out in the world in terms of politics you know, people want change, but they also just want to know that things are going to get better. They want to have hope. They want to have the confidence that they're going to be able to return to some semblance of a normal life, that there will be an end to, you know, open up, shut down, masks on, not anymore, just kidding, but they're back on. You know, people want to know that they can trust the messages that they're hearing. They want to just live a normal life, be able to take care of themselves and their families. And I, I think that's why people are really checking in at the local level and why I'm so passionate about being a local government official, serving at the local level, keeping those connections local and really doing the work uh, of um. Of local government because that's what matters most to people. It's nonpartisan. People are sick of partisan politics, and in, in many ways, they don't, You know, they feel like we can't agree on anything. And so, um, local local government is a place where maybe we can start bringing people together, where we can, you know, just reach out to our neighbor again, take care of, you know, yes, our own backyard, and make sure that we're taking care of ourselves.
1: Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of local governments, uh, you are the long- longest, consecutively serving mayor of West Hollywood. Uh, you know you've led the city uh, in 2020, 2021 through the worst of this crisis. Uh, you were elected to City of West Hollywood City Council in 2015, uh, and previously uh, you had served from 2009 to 2011. What has your experience been? Uh, serving in a city that, to some, may seem small, but it's a very pivotal city. You know, nationally, a lot of people look at West Hollywood. It's a trendsetter. It is a, a trailblazer in so many ways. Than one. What have these last, what 15, 16, 17 years looked like?
0: Yeah, it's amazing to think how many years I've already been in office and uh, the experience that comes with it. And yet, uh, to be under 40, and um, I think I come with that right balance of, you know, a lot of experience, seeing what uh, what can happen when you do things right in a city, and also um, hopefully translating that to a level that has broader impact for people uh, throughout Los Angeles County. Um uh, you know, West Hollywood has uh, had a national and international spotlight on it for so many reasons. Yes, people know us uh, for uh, the ways that we have always been committed to protecting and fighting for our LGBTQ plus community. Now over 40%, nearing 50% of our population in the city. Um, no surprise there. Uh, we ha- we were the first city to provide domestic partnerships. We were at the forefront of the AIDS and HIV crisis. We uh, took care of people. It's just who we've always been. Um, Even now we see LA County talking about how they balance having both services while also making sure they sufficiently invest in public safety. That's something we've always done as a community. We have always supported our social safety net while also taking care of community safety, making sure people feel safe in their community, especially um, as a community that has LGBT people, that has older adults, that has a high Jewish population and concentration. We know that hate crimes have ticked up and that, um, people are feeling unsafe uh, for those reasons and so as a as a community we have consistently fought back on these issues we've fought to protect people and we'll continue to do as a city and and i believe that's really what the region is also looking for you know we've been at the forefront of progressive policies but they're just practical solutions to the, the experiences that people are facing in their lives. In our community, we're over 80% renters. So it's no surprise that we have been at the forefront of renters protections and uh, thinking like renters in our community to, to think about how we make sure people who are living their entire life as renters, not just sort of that transitional stage that many people think about in their early life. Um, many We have many lifelong renters in our city. And so so making sure they have a good quality of life, that they live in buildings that are sustainable and retrofitted, and um, able to uh, be places where they can safely age in place. Um, you know, those those are things that we're thinking about in terms of our existing housing stock as we look squarely in the face a housing crisis, and you know, a, a homelessness crisis. We don't want anybody slipping into homelessness. We we fight against that, and in fact. Um, year after year, we have had success getting people off the streets and into housing services or both in our community um, to the tune of 80% success rate year after year. So we know firsthand what the issues are that people have faced and are facing. We have taken them head on. We have learned how to be successful, use our resources wisely. We also have, you know, even through the pandemic, a triple A bond rating and have been very um, fiscally responsible with taxpayer dollars providing you know more green space and expanding our local parks um you know doing all the things that people expect a a local government to do for them um but being in a city that is also national spotlight for all of the good reasons that we have been um it's it's an amazing place i i feel it's been the the gift of a lifetime to be able to be of service to my community and um and and i've really been honored uh to have that opportunity
1: i agree i think The word I I think about or I thought about when you were talking is audacious in a good way. West Hollywood has been audacious when other cities have been very uh, timid and wanted to see what's going to happen with the trailblazer. But West Hollywood has really put itself out there, whether it was abandoning the sale of fur or one-time plastic use and such. And I have to say this for those listening Uh, In 2003, West Hollywood doesn't have a significant Armenian-American community. It didn't in 2003, and it still doesn't. However, the city of West Hollywood recognized the Armenian genocide in 2003. And uh, you have marched with us uh, during the uh, commemoration of the Armenian genocide on April 24th. And it was through your co-sponsorship with uh, Councilmember Seppi Shine earlier last year that the city of West Hollywood officially and formally recognized the independent of Artsakh. So there are so many things that make West Hollywood a very unique city in a really, really good way. So I'm very grateful for that. I wanna go into your sort of next, you know, what, you know, the LA County Board of Supervisors, which is your candidate for it, you're a front runner, and it's going to happen later this year during the election. A lot of people don't know how powerful this body is and uh, the kind of budget they have, the, the kind of immense responsibility they have. In some ways, they are more powerful than our uh, state senators and assembly members of, due to the many areas that they have to oversee, etc. cetera. And uh, you are essentially running for uh, the seat of the beloved Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who also has endorsed you already for, for that. So that's a, that's a great treat. Why, you know, you are, you know, very young, you've been very successful already. So why LA County supervisors as the next step in your public service?
0: Well, I think that we are facing a very urgent moment in LA County. Uh, as I, as I mentioned, people, are looking squarely in the face in their own communities, the devastating impact of homelessness and the affordable housing crisis and housing crisis overall. Um, They're looking at how do we keep our communities safe and um, have a good quality of life while we see costs and the the cost of living rising. Um, We've taxed ourselves to improve things like our transportation infrastructure, but haven't always seen the results of that in our own neighborhoods. And with uh, the effects of COVID-19 shutting down businesses and putting people out of work, people are looking at how am I going to get my business back open and running? How am I going to get back to a job that affords myself and my family a good quality of life. Um, these are the things that I faced as a council member, that I faced as a mayor during during COVID. Um, and, um, and, you know, we were recognized during my tenure of leadership as being the most business-friendly city in the county for the work that we did to support our businesses, while also raising the minimum wage and implementing worker protections and safe working conditions for people who are on the front lines doing work in the face of great risk Um, these things do not need to be mutually exclusive you can do both you can do it both successfully and do them well uh, and serve all of all of the constituents of our community because i believe that recovery uh, must include everyone. And so uh, while I didn't know that LA County Board of Supervisors was gonna be in my future, I think facing this moment and being asked by so many people who are now part of my very strong and diverse coalition of support um, to seriously consider getting in this race. It started with questions and nudging and after several months of saying no, um, people got a little louder and a little sterner with me. And you know, truth is um, I really appreciate it because I see how people want the experience of a local leader um, at the county board. We have a tremendous amount of experience and talent on the board already, um, but what we really need is a local perspective, somebody who um, has done you know years of work in community is connected at the local level with local leaders and groups and constituencies throughout the county you know and represents a diverse coalition of people that's reflective of the district and so um, you know i look at the people who are counting on me and calling on me to run for this office um, i feel a sense of responsibility but i also am very excited about this moment and all that it presents us um, many people really don't know just how impactful la county is on their daily life. But you know, uh, LA County is over 10, 10 million people, 88 cities. We um, in LA County have over 100,000 employees serving LA County on any given day. We have um, as residents of LA County, we, we know that it's about a $34 billion annual budget. It's so many opportunities and a lot of power to invest in creating meaningful change in things that touch everybody's lives from homelessness and housing, mental health, public safety, um, you know, our criminal justice system, uh, foster care, you name it. Our entire social safety net is really wrapped up in the work of the county, so I'm eager to take the experience I have, plus the energy perspective and just really problem solving uh, and bringing people together uh, record that I have um, to bear for, for the residents of LA County.
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with council member Lindsey Horvath, who is also running for the LA County Board of Supervisors. Well. Wow even for for me who knows to a degree what telecamera supervisors do just hearing that that's just so overwhelming and you do have a very comprehensive ambitious plan um, and priorities Uh, one of them of course is uh dealing with the unhoused which has been sort of on almost everyone's agenda on top of their agenda it's a very complicated it's a very um, intertwined topic. It's not, there are no easy solutions. It's not necessarily just a California issue or LA County issue. It's really a nationwide issue and it goes into other issues. And I and I it reminds me to also commend you for City of West Hollywood's recent increase in minimum wage because I think that uh, our, our unhoused challenge uh, is related to that is, is cost of living as well as income throughout the nation. So uh, West Hollywood really did the, this great thing to, um, to increase the minimum wage uh, as it did. So I'll stop talking and just wanna hear your ideas about um, the unhoused.
0: So, um, you know, I think this issue uh, like, like several others, you know, we have so many really smart people working hard to try and make a difference in very broken systems. And when we look at um, our unhoused residents in LA County, we cannot be asking them to navigate three and four different departments in a county as big as I described and expect them to have successful and meaningful results on their own. We need to help these people who are living in our community and bring support directly to them. We can't expect to create offices that are, you know, out of uh, walking distance and require, you know, long transportation routes to, to, we can't just, we can't expect them to get there on their own. We have to meet them where they are. And that's exactly what Uh, we have done in our community. We have street teams that go out and meet people every day of the week. We employ people who themselves are formerly unhoused, have struggled with addiction and um, mental health uh, issues. Um, They have um, really seen the worst of it and come out on the other side. And so they are trusted ambassadors um of, of these resources. Uh, they're able to go out and build trust with folks in the community and uh help them uh you know first of all know what is available to them and then trust uh you know getting off the streets and and a new way of life and uh we provide transportation, we connect people with mental health uh, services, with addiction and recovery services, um, whatever it is they need. And on the safety side for those um issues that come up related to our unhoused residents we lead with um, clinically trained social workers who partner with our sheriff's department to go out um, and they lead on these calls they are able to diagnose people who are struggling with mental illness or or other issues um, and get them into services and care rather than being uh, you know jailed just simply for being unhoused Um, and this is, I think, how most people would like to see this issue handled, um, but I know that people are increasingly frustrated, and let's be clear, when people are a, a, a risk to themselves or others, we treat that very seriously, and uh, and for people who um, are, are experiencing um, mental health issues or other issues, we, we want them to have the services and support immediately that they need. So um, I, I think that's really what we need to do is invest in those direct solutions. We, uh, we work with community partners that already contract with LA County in our community. So I know that this model that we have is scalable because we're already using organizations that work with LA County. We're working with the Sheriff's Department, which of course is under the jurisdiction of LA County supervisors. Um, and we also um, need to build out our Department of Mental Health and the supportive services that will actually provide the resources and support that people need. We need to build housing all kinds uh, but especially housing that is affordable for people um but we also know that there are housing options that people uh that already exist that we can get people into um with a little bit of creativity ingenuity and just willingness to to do something different and you know whether it's converting um an an old hospital or an old motel into a, a livable uh uh place where people can get off the streets and 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 maybe even be provided services to we have facilities throughout the district and throughout the county that already are built with a little bit of investment not from the ground up but just a little bit of investment and love can become places where people can get off the streets and safely receive those services i've spoken with local elected officials who have endorsed me who are supporting my campaign who are interested in working with me because we've seen it firsthand at the local level having to solve these problems it's not enough to just say oh here's here's money you know that we can't just throw money at this problem we need to be strategic we need to be thoughtful and we need to be intentional and where that money is spent and how it's spent and that's the experience that I'm able to bring to bear um, that differentiates me from my opponents in this race but I think is really the kind of practical problem solving that people are looking for
1: yeah, absolutely. Long term, as you said. Thanks for that. This is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jerome, and you are listening to my interview with Councilmember Lindsay Horvath, who is also running for the LA County Board of Supervisors. I'm going to skip one question for the sake of time, but I do want to ask okay. you this because, uh, you know, as long as I've known you, you have an exceptional record. Uh, people admire you for. Uh, not uh, on top of being, uh, you know, an elected official and policymaker, but you have uh, an exceptional record in uh, social justice and equality and fighting for uh, the disadvantaged. Going into the LA County Board of Supervisors, do you think you can sort of have that kind of intensity there too?
0: We have to. It's not optional. We must center the people who are most marginalized, who are often forgotten about, and we must put them at the center of our work. That is how we make sure that government serves everyone. Um, we can't leave anybody behind. And, and we do that uh, by um, helping community uh, see who's in their community, that, um, that really helping people take care of one another within their own community and providing support and resources um, to community-based solutions that people already trust. You know, we, we have whether it um, has been, as I mentioned, fighting for the LGBTQ community, whether it has been creating with our mayor Pro Tem uh, Set Be Shine the um, social justice task force in our city, uh, and empowering uh, communities of color to have not only a literal seat at the table, but a strong uh, and clear voice in, in advising on policies that we're implementing in the city. Um, whether it's, you know, fighting for women and making sure that women have equal rights, equal pay, equal access. Um, you know, we we have been at the, forefront, at the forefront of so many important issues and fights. Um, and, and that needs to continue. But what we also need to see is that everyone it needs to be part of these solutions. As I said, the recovery that we are looking at um, in terms of recovering from COVID economically um, psychologically, you know, in all the ways that we need to recover um, has to include everyone. And so we need to be intentional in that way. And, and I have support from community organizations and partners who reflect the diversity of our district, as I mentioned. So I really believe that, um, that this is not a pie in the sky sort of thing. This is something we can actually do and get done and, and, um, and do so proudly.
1: Amen. Yeah. And uh, if you go to uh, Lindsay's, her website, you'll see all the endorsements. It's very impressive. And lindsayhorvath.com is L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-H-O-R-V-A-T-H.com. That's right. Just wanted to spell that lindsayhorvath.com. Lindsay, thank you very much. Um, I'll say good luck, but, uh, you know, I don't think you need it. Thanks for uh We being definitely on the show.
0: need it. We need luck, we need we need uh just good old-fashioned hard work and Support um, from, and, us, uh, we're from, gonna from the people.
1: It. <laughs> we'll talk Thanks. again before before um the election, I hope.
0: I certainly hope so. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was my interview with
1: Council Member Lindsay Horvath, uh whom I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years. I've seen her work, her dedication to the city of West Hollywood uh you know, up close, Uh, and I'm very excited that she is uh, running for L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Thank you, Councilmember Horvat, for being on the show. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicGerami. At V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you.
0: Blunt Post with Vic.